number of years ago, uh, we got to go on a mission trip to Mexico. And can anybody think what the, what the worst part of the mission trip was? Uh, the flight, it wasn't too bad. Flight wasn't too bad. I like flying. Um, the water is not good. You're not supposed to drink the water. A few of us drank the water when we brushed our teeth, and uh, you had stuff coming out of all the, the, the crevices. It was not good. That wasn't my, but that wasn't bad for me. Uh, some people were like, uh, the, the, the dry heat, the heat, it was just so warm and dusty. Like that was, that, that wasn't too bad for me. The food, I love the food. I will not complain about the food. The food was, was amazing. You can, yeah, my love language is tacos. So you are welcome to speak my love language whenever you'd like. Uh, the worst part of this trip was on the last day of our trip, we were going to drive up Baja and we stopped in Ensenada to do shopping. Okay, let me tell you why this is the worst. Because I don't know, if you ever go shopping in Mexico, the way it works, I wanted these maracas, right? The little maracas, because I keep trying to join the worship team. I can't play the guitars, but I'm like, maracas, I can play those. And so we go to this shop, and the maracas are there. It's the most wonderful set of maracas I've ever seen. And they're listed for $25. And I'm like, done, done. And my wife looks at me, and she's like, you can't pay that. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you got to go up there and barter. And I'm like, I don't do that. Like I, like, I don't know. Some of you were into the bartering thing. Like, that is not me. That gives me such anxiety. And I'm like, ah, no, I can't do that. And she's like, no, Kevin, you have to go barter. I'm like, all right. So I, I, I'm in this little store. I bring my maracas, and I walk up to, to the employee who happens to be this little 10-year-old boy who's a little chunky. He's got chocolate all over his face. And he says, que paso, amigo? And I'm like, here, have all my money. Like, what do you want, 50 bucks for these things? Like, I'm in. I can't barter. It's terrible. I, I hate it. It's the worst part of that trip is going to these stores and bartering. How much is this? How much is that? Like, some of you all are good at that. Now, I do want to share with you what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life. It's good to hear what God is doing in people's lives. And so let me tell you what, what happened here, here just a couple uh, months ago. Our oldest son, Cameron, was looking for a new car. He lives down in Salem, and so he wanted something that would be all-wheel drive, that he could drive to Yakima, because we like our kids, and so uh, looking for a new car. So we're on Craigslist, we're on Facebook Marketplace, we find the right car. It's the right car, it's got the right number of miles on it, it's the right price. And so we go meet the guy that owns the car, we meet him at Rosar's, and we're like, all right, hey, you mind if we test drive it? He's like, sure, I'll ride with you, and I'm like, that's cool. So we're driving, I'm testing out this car. And uh, of course, I make the joke, and I'm like, surprised you're letting me drive when I don't have a license. And he goes, it's okay, I'm a sheriff's deputy. And I'm like, oh, dang it, you know. <laughs> so we're driving the car, and Sam and I are like, you know, he's in the back, and we're like trying to talk, and we're like, is this a good car? She's like, it's a good car. Like, is it a good price? I'm like, it's a good price. We can make this work. And Cameron's like, yeah, let's buy this car. And so we get back, and, and, and we're like, we're set. Like, this car is a good deal. It's worth what it is. And, and, and the other guy, the sheriff's deputy, he's across the way from me, and, and we're looking at one. This is the time, right? This is the time. And I don't know, like, like, something happened in that moment. Like, the Holy Spirit came over me. I had such boldness. We're already going to buy the car. And I'm like, I'll give you $1,500 less. Yeah, I bartered with the guy. I bartered with him. Now, you ever seen like, like those old Western movies, you know, where you got the duel, the stare down, where two guys are opposite each other, and they're just staring each other down? Who's going to give in first? And I'm here, and I'm like, I want to pay 1500 bucks less. And he's like, I want full price. And I'm like, but I want $1,500 less. And so we're sitting there. 
Now, I'll be honest, my knees are knocking. I'm, I got sweat coming out of weird places. Like, I'm just like, oh, man, this is so nerve-wracking for me. And, and he's just there looking at me, thinking about it. And I'm like, come on, man, it's, it's my son. You know, he's, he's a little boy. I mean, he's a grown man, but, you know, it's my son. And he's just staring at me. Who's going to give in first, me or him? He said, all right, all right, I'll give you $1,500 less. So we got the car. That was amazing. I bartered. I hate bartering. Man. All right. <laughs> what does this story have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with. What happens when you and someone else are in that showdown where you have a difference of opinion? Who's going to bend first? Who's going to break Who's going to submit to the other person? Who's going to raise the right flag and say, I surrender, you win? How many of you have been in that situation, right? With your spouse? Who's going to give in first? With your parent, with whatever it happens to be, you get in the spot where it's a showdown. Here's what I want. It's different than what you want. Who's going to give in first? (laughs) Now, what about when we are in that showdown with God? when us and God have a difference of opinion on how things should go. Isn't that kind of the story of life, right? Every one of us, we have these ideas of how life should work. We have these ideas, hey, this is the way that life should work. This is the way the faith should work. This is how things should work. And sometimes, if we're going to be honest, that is opposite than the way that God says this is the way things should be. Happens like this. We, we have a way that we define peace. We think peace should be the absence of conflict. We think peace means, man, I'm going to have an easy life. Well, we look and say, well, God, you promised to give us peace. God, you promised to give us peace. And God, your peace is not the peace that I anticipated. It's that showdown. Who's going to win? God, your peace is not what I want. Something's wrong with you, God. You need to change to meet my definition of what peace is. Don't, don't, don't judge me. You guys have all been in that situation where we have these different opinions and we think, God, you need to do it the way I see it. We look at love. We have a definition of what love is. We say love is whatever makes you happy. Just go be happy. But then we look at God and we're like, well, God, he, he judges sin. He, 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 he calls sin wrong. And we're like, God, you're not loving God, like, you need to change your definition of love to be what I want it to be, which is whatever makes me happy. We have these definitions of what a Christian is and what a uh, Christian, what that word means. And we think, God, man, I'm following you, God. God, I'm following you. God, I'm going to church. God, I put some money in the offering, God. I'm doing these things for you. Don't you have to bless me? Shouldn't my life be easy and absent of pain and trouble? God, I'm following you. I'm a Christian. Why am I struggling? And God's like, here's the thing. That's how you're defining Christian. But I define Christian as you are a part of my family, which means I am with you wherever you go. No matter what you face, no matter what difficulty you're in, I'll be there with you. We're like, God, but that's not my definition of what I expect from you. And we get to the showdown with us and God. God, you're not doing what I think you should do. Who's going to surrender? Is God going to bend to our will? Or are we going to bend to his will? We're in this series, uh, the book of Acts, that we've been in all of this year so far, and we're going to be in through the rest of the year, uh, looking at how the early church, uh, when the church started so many thousands of years ago, how 
it wasn't just an institution that you came and, and worshiped to and, and you listened to some preaching. The church was a movement that impacted everyone around them. It was, it was awesome. And we want to look and say here, 2,000 years later at Restoration Church, how do we become not just an institution, but how do we become a movement that makes an impact in our city, in our state, in our country, in the world? That's what I long for us, that we would be a movement that would have an impact on people around us. And our text today, this morning, that Jake, or excuse me, that Debbie, uh, <laughs> that Jaylene read for us this morning, is going to cause us to consider what happens when our thoughts, when our preferences, when our understanding of how life should work, what happens when our prejudices are contrary to God's purposes? How do we respond? Who's going to bend? Does God bend to us or do we bend to him? Just a little bit of a recap. Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Jake was in Acts chapter 10. And uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter was in one of those Western standoffs, right? You know, you know Peter, Peter was a guy who, who, who loved Jesus, but he held on to his Jewish uh, uh, religious customs, which means he didn't eat meat. There were other certain foods he wouldn't eat. He didn't hang out with Gentiles or people who were not ethnically Jewish. Among other things, he had these religious customs and traditions that he held on to even though he was loving Jesus. In our day, we might say as Christians, we think Christians don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. My wife says I say that too often, but that's kind of the ideas. We have these ideas. This is what a Christian does. And we say they, you know, Christians, they uh, external things. Christians don't get tattoos. Christians don't have weird piercings. Christians don't go to R-rated movies. Christians don't go to breweries. And we have all these things and we say, hey, if you're a good Christian, then you do all these external things and this makes you a good Christian, right? Well, this is the way that Peter was living. And God interrupted that and gave him a vision of a sheet. He's got the sheet with all these animals that come down on, on, on the sheet. There's like, there's pigs and, and, and cow and medium rare steak. Uh, no kale, baked potato on the side. There's, there's smoked turkey. Uh, smoked turkey is the best way to eat turkey. Can I just say that? Uh, that that's free for you. The, the sheet comes down with all these animals on it. And God tells Peter, Kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, God, I've never done that. Like, I, I, I'm a good Jewish boy. I've never eaten those things. I would never do that. That is against my tradition. But three times, three times, God shows him this sheet with these animals on it. And God says, kill and eat. And Peter's in the standoff with God. What do you mean? This is against my tradition and custom. God is trying to do something in Peter's life to understand faith is more than just your custom and your tradition. It's more than just eating meat. And so he has this vision, and all of a sudden, three men come knocking on the door, and they're Gentile men from Caesarea. And the scripture in Acts 10 says that the Spirit compelled Peter to go with them and to go to a guy named Cornelius' house. Cornelius was a military commander. He was a Gentile. He was a guy that, that had his own vision from God. And, and his vision was that Peter was going to come and preach a life-changing message. And here's Peter like, these people are Gentiles. I'm not supposed to hang out with these people. These are people who are sinners. They're the least likely people that we would think that God would want to reach. And Peter's in this conundrum, what do I do? 
I shouldn't be hanging out with these types of people. My tradition says that God's grace goes to the Jewish people, goes to the people who follow those Jewish dietary commands. Um, People who are circumcised. If you don't know what circumcision was, go ahead and talk to Jillian after service. She'd love to explain that for you. Like, like she's saying there's all these external things and this is what, uh, this is the people that God blesses and, and God's trying to open his eyes a little bit to say it's more than just that. God is showing Peter something different. In fact, the, the big idea from last week was God shows no, no partiality. Acts chapter 10 teaches us that God shows no partiality in who he is going to save and draw into a relationship with him. Doesn't matter your background. If you believe in Jesus and what he has done for you, you are acceptable to God. So Peter wisely is confronted with this and wisely he decides, okay, I'm not gonna go against God. I'm gonna submit my thoughts and my convictions to God and I'm gonna go to Cornelius and he goes and he, and he shares the gospel message about how Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave. And this was an important message for the church. That Jesus came not just to save the religious, but to save everybody. And that was a message from two weeks ago. And we didn't get there, but something awesome happens after, or while Peter is preaching this. It says in verse 44, our text today, Acts 10, 44. It says, while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard, and believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, listen to this, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even to Gentiles, and they were hearing them speaking in tongues and praising God. Do you know how remarkable that is? See, Acts chapter 2, this is the start of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, you've got all these, you've got all these uh, uh, Jewish Christians, they're together. They're together in the upper room. And remember that text, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit descends on those believers. There are about 120 of them gathered together. The Holy Spirit descends on them and everyone, the, one of them begins speaking in tongues. They start speaking in tongues and praising God and telling all the things that God has done. It was amazing. And here, in Acts chapter 10, you see something very similar. The Holy Spirit descends on these Gentiles, on these outsiders, on these people that we would not expect God to, to love. The Holy Spirit descends on them, almost confirming their faith. God's Spirit coming down and taking up residence in their life it is a picture of saying, hey, their faith is real. Their faith is genuine. In fact, one of the things that I like to do in my Bible is write little notes. And you might put this in, in your Bible next to that verse, verse 46. Uh, there are a lot of uh, theologians that say this is the Gentile Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit comes and says, we're going to bring everybody into the faith. We have Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and now we have the Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapter 10. It was great. And Peter looks at what's happening. And he's like, man, the Holy Spirit is here? So it says in verse 26, excuse me, 40, 40, 47, it says, Peter declared that anybody, can anybody withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Ask the question, verse 48, he says, I command them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to remain there a few days. Again, Peter was a guy who spent a lot of time with Jesus. Remember, Jesus said to uh, the disciples right before he went up to heaven, he said, he, he said do, you, do you guys remember what the Great Commission is? He said, I want you to go in all the nations, uh, 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 
make disciples of all nations, and then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. All right? And so Peter's like, hey, these guys, like the Holy Spirit has descended on them. I think that means that they're Christians now. I think that means they've become disciples. We've done that. We've made a disciple. What's next? Oh, we're supposed to baptize them. It was like, all right, who can withhold baptism? He baptizes them. And then what's next is to teach them to deserve all that I command. So it says that he stayed with them for a few days. He's trying to teach them this is what it means to live as a Christian. Now, I'll tell you what, though. The story ended right here. You'd be like, that's a good story. Peter had this amazing experience where God opened his eyes, and he would have been really encouraged and jazzed. It would have been awesome. But that's not how the story ends. It continues in verse, chapter 11. It says in verse 1 of chapter 11, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea, this is Israel, they heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter went back to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him and said, you went to uncircumcised people and you ate with them. Listen, if you're a Christian here today, have you ever had that experience where you're like, man, I'm going to do some ministry I'm going to go and love people and point them to Jesus. I'm going to go and tell people about Jesus. And all of a sudden, you have religious people who begin to criticize you. What are you doing? Why are you trying to do ministry like that? Why are you telling people about Jesus? It reminds me a little bit of a story that happened with Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has been preaching. He's been doing miracles. And he's, gathered, he's garnered a lot of attention. There's crowds that are following him, including the Pharisees. The religious leaders. These Pharisees, they were the religious people who were careful to avoid any hint of impurity, right? If you can picture Ned Flanders, you know, just this outward Christian doing all the, following all the religious rules. This is what the Pharisees were. And with all this attention now on Jesus, what is Jesus going to do? Well, it says in, in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, that Jesus reclined at the table, which means he ate with many tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees who are looking on, they say in verse 11, why does your teacher eat with sinners? The Pharisees are like, that's scandalous. That's scandalous. Any good Jew, any good Christian, man, we'd only eat with godly people, right? I mean, any good Christian would only listen to Christian radio, right? Any good Christian uh, would never wear holes with jeans. No, jeans with holes in them, right? Any good Christian would have short, clean-cut hair. Any good Christian, uh, you know, they wouldn't have any weird piercings on their body. They wouldn't have tattoos. Like any, come on, these are the religious rules. We're all familiar with them. Any good Christian, you know, they'd only hang out with godly people who are just like them. And this is what Christians do. Just like those Pharisees, we make all these external religious rules. So we can say, look how godly I am. And we hang out with people that are just like us. And Jesus doesn't do that. And they're like, what the heck are you doing, Jesus? You aren't doing things the way that we do them. And Jesus overhears these Pharisees saying this. And it says in verse 12, Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here's Peter. Comes back to Jerusalem, and the religious people are outraged. 
What do you mean? You ate with Gentiles. You ate with uncircumcised people. You ate with people who don't follow our religious traditions. You can't do that. What are you doing? Don't you love God anymore? Aren't you a Christian? You can't do that sort of thing. You see, these religious leaders are in that standoff that Peter was in not long ago. The religious leaders are saying, hey, this is the way that we understand how, real, how faith works. It's that, that, that you, you only eat certain things, you don't eat, and you don't hang out with those kinds of people. And God's like, hey, I show no partiality. I came to save everyone. And Peter was there not long ago. Peter was in that standoff. God, I can't eat that. I can't go to these people. God opened up his mind to see there was more than just his religious traditions. God opened his eyes and showed him that God's purposes, they trump his own understanding and preferences and prejudices. And I wanted to point this out. Uh, here, am I in the right spot? Yeah, I am, sorry. I'm getting so excited, I can't even pay attention to my notes. Uh, I wanted to point this out. Like, here the church had some pretty strong words for, for Peter. Peter, how dare you do this? Peter, are you in a Christian? You're eating with Gentiles? What's wrong with you? And notice what Peter does. The church was wrong in their criticism of him, but notice what Peter does. Does he quit on the church? Does he say, oh, those religious people, they don't get it. I'm better than them. God's opened my eyes. I don't need them anymore. I'm beyond their traditional ways. No, Peter doesn't reject the church. In fact, Peter's going to spend the next... 12 verses, verses 4 through 17, recounting his entire story of what happened in chapter 10. He's going to try and help the church understand what God is trying to do. And he does. He, he recounts the story. He tells about the sheep that came down and all the animals and that ate. And Peter tells the church, man, I argued with God. God said, eat. And I argued with him and said, God, I've never done that. I never will. But God said it three times to me. And then he tells uh, the leaders, uh, he says, yeah, and then these three men showed up and they take me to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius is like, God told me you're going to give me a life-changing message. And Peter was like, what am I supposed to tell him? And so I preached the gospel. I preached, Jesus, you're, you're a sinner. You need a savior. Jesus is the savior. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the grave. And if you believe in him, you can become his child. And Peter says, the craziest thing, because the Holy Spirit descended upon them, just as the Holy Spirit did to us in the beginning of the church. Now, little sidetrack here. Uh, one of the things when you are reading Scripture, I always want to throw this type of thing in. When you are, are studying the Bible and you see something repeated, that's one of those things you got to pay attention to. When the Bible repeats something, that means it's significant. It's something we need to pay attention to. The, the book of Acts is written by Dr. Luke. Luke has already told the story in chapter 10. And now Luke is going to repeat the story in chapter 11. Why? Because it's significant for the early church and it's significant for us here today. Teaching us God does not show favoritism. Every person, regardless of their background, regardless of their ethnicity, of their economic standing, regardless of what is on their record, Every person who fears God and believes and receives him, he gives the right to become the children of God. 
This message is repeated because we've got to understand this is the grace of God to the world. He shows no partiality. So Peter does this. Verses 4 through 16, he tells a story of all that happened. And he concludes. He says, when I saw the Holy Spirit descend on these Gentiles, verse 16, he said, I was reminded of the word of the Lord. How he said, John will baptize you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's like, duh, these guys were baptized with the Holy Spirit just like we were. And verse 17, he said, if God has given the same gift of the Holy Spirit to them as he gave to us who believed in Jesus, then listen to this, this is the key. Then who was I to stand in God's way? If God is, is saving them just as he saved us, who am I to stand in God's way? Peter's saying, listen, when we're faced with that standoff, like I've got my opinions about this is how God works, but this is the type of people that God loves, and God is trying to do something different, who am I to stand against God's purposes? Is that really the way that we want to live? Fighting us against God? So Peter says to the church, who am I to stand in God's way? Verse 18, when the church heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then I guess to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Listen, I can't say this enough, how significant this is. Despite whatever understanding we might have or tradition that we hold on to, despite our preferences, and despite our knowing and unknowing prejudices. The eyes of God, the gospel, makes no difference between Jew and Gentile. Makes no difference between uh, rich and poor. No difference between black and white and brown. Makes no difference between notorious sinners and upright religious people. The gospel says, all who receive me and believe in what I've done, I've given the right to become the children of God. I can't Stress that enough. We've got to understand the gospel shows no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're the religious person or you're the, the hellion. When you place your faith in Jesus, that's what makes you a Christian. We come to this point, we're like, all right, what does this story teach us, Pastor Kevin? What do we learn from this? Here's our summary for the message. God's purposes trump our understanding, our traditions, our preferences, our prejudices. God's will, God's purposes, God's word, it trumps all of our prejudices and preferences and our own ways of understanding things and the way we would like things to be. What happens though, let's just be honest, for many of us in church life, at times, we take our understanding and our thinking and our tradition, and we hold it, and we become at odds with God. Isn't this true? How many of us that have followed God for very long have been in the spot where you're like, man, God, I really want life to work this way, but you're telling me to live a different way? I mean, I would say that the Christian life is us learning continually to surrender our thoughts and our opinions and our will to his will. I find that the more I follow Jesus, the more I find myself in opposition with him and the more I've got to learn how to surrender and say, all right, God, 
This is the way I want things to work out, but God, you say differently. So God, I'm gonna surrender to you. And I would say this is what Christian maturity is. We wanna have depth of faith. Those that are deep in the faith have learned we just continually surrender and submit to God. God, this is how I'd like to view this, but I'm gonna surrender to what you have, have called us to. So a couple of questions for application for you this morning. Number one, if you'd be honest, are there any prejudices towards people coming into the church? Do you have any prejudices towards people coming into the church? Now, of course, we're at church. Of course, we'd say, well, no way. No, I have no prejudice. Anybody can come to the church, of course. I, I believe that. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not Pharisee. No way I'm a Pharisee. Here's the thing. Few of us would say we're Pharisees philosophically, but if we're being honest, at times we are Pharisees practically. Let me ask you this question. When you're at church and you see someone, who is it in the foyer that makes you nervous to talk to? I can't go talk to that person. The way they look, the way they talk, the way they're... Who makes you nervous to talk to? Who do you think, oh, that person, they need to come to church. They just don't need to come to my church. Who is it you're like, man, that person needs to come to church, but first they need to clean up their act. Again, few of us are Pharisees philosophically, but this gets pretty practical. To reveal maybe there are some prejudices First, people coming into the church. Makes me think about the movie, uh, Jesus Revolution. Have you seen that movie? It's a great movie. I loved it. Jesus Revolution tells the story of, of Chuck Smith, uh, uh, who was the pastor of a small church in Southern California, struggling, struggling to attract new people. And Chuck Smith, he meets this guy named Lonnie Frisbee, who happens to be a guy who dogs like to chase because Frisbee's chasing dogs. That's a side point. Sorry, I had to go there. Lonnie was passionate about reaching the younger generation of the 70s. We're talking about hippies. He was a Christian hippie himself who was passionate about, about reaching the hippie generation of the 70s, people that were all about love and peace and drugs and all those other things. And so Chuck and Lonnie, they start this relationship and they're, they're, they're reaching this, this, this generation. And they're seeing hundreds of these young hippies coming to faith in Jesus, and, and it's awesome. And, and it shows, in the movie, that shows them coming into the church. And what happens in the movie, the scene, is there are these uh, existing church members, these guys in their suits and ties, clean cut, carrying their three-inch Bible under their arm. And they come to Chuck Smith with an objection. Say, so how can you allow these barefoot hippies with their bell bottoms and their Jesus music into the church. They're challenging our traditions that we have grown accustomed to and the way that the church has operated forever how long it's been. And this is Chuck, face, this is Chuck Smith facing that dilemma, facing that standoff. Do I cater to the Christian traditions of the church? Or do I continue sharing the gospel and helping those hippies find freedom in Jesus? That question becomes, 
Do God's purposes trump our traditions and understanding and preferences and prejudices? Now, we might say, well, that was the hippies in the 70s. That wouldn't be in our day and age. Well, I'll tell you what, in my experience in leadership in the last 20 years in the Christian church, you know, I've heard folks say, kids from downtown coming to church, well, if those kids keep coming, we can't participate. It's a prejudice. I've heard people say, well, well, you mean there's homeless people at the church? I can't be around that. It's a prejudice. Is it possible that when you think somebody else is wrong, maybe they're not wrong, maybe you are just uncomfortable? Makes me think, makes me think of... Uh, Again, Jaylene this morning talked about the, the younger generation and how we love being a church that invests in the younger generation. And we've given a lot of our young people opportunities to, to learn to worship. And we did a, a worship night here uh, a couple months ago, and it was great. Our youth led it. And uh, if you missed out, shame on you. You missed out on a great, on a great night. But one of the things that happened was, was one of our students, they're up there and they're doing a song and they did their own spin on it. And they did a rap in the middle of the song. It was awesome. I loved it. Now, the most surprising thing, though, is, is one of our elders of our church, Rod Nipper, okay, he, like, he was in Jesus' yearbook, right? He goes long back. May or, might have, may or may not have been a hippie when he was growing up. I don't know. You can ask him about it, right? Now, I don't think Rod has ever listened to rap music in his entire life, let alone hearing rap music at church. But I tell you what, this... This is so cool to me. Love seeing these kids engage in worship. And so Rod sought that student out a number of times and said, hey, what song were you singing? I want to listen to it. I want to hear it again. I want to keep hearing it. It was a good song. And here you've got Rod and, you know, a few years ahead of me saying, I want to listen to that song that kids sang that was not my style of music, not the way I grew up, not my tradition. Man, that is beautiful. Are we open enough to what God is, is trying to do to have the humility to say yes to God and no to ourselves? Are we willing to submit and surrender our preferences and our tradition and our prejudices to the purposes of God, of him saving souls of him taking the next generation and getting them on fire for him. Number two, we talked about the big church. We talked about, are there any prejudices you have towards people in the church? Number two, where is it that you need to submit your understanding, and your traditions, and your preferences, and your prejudices to God? Again, we think about our worldview. We all have those ways that we think this is how life should work. This is how faith, this is how the church should work. And at times, if we're going to be honest, the way that we think is in contradiction with God. God saying, hey, this is what I expect from you in terms of, of marriage or sexuality or compassion or, or money or whatever it happens to be. And we're like, all right, who's going to bend to who? 
God, you need to follow the way that I think it works out. Or will I surrender to you? Listen, it, it may be a big thing like Peter in the early church was dealing with, with prejudices. What about those little things in our lives that are contrary to the way that God would call us to live? I mean, I, I, I'll throw a few of these out. God says, hey, don't gossip. Gossip is, is wrong. We shouldn't talk about other people behind their back. And we would say, well, God, you just don't understand our culture. Our culture today, God, is that we go and we take like hundreds of pictures and we find the very best one. We put it on social media and be like, oh, look, I just took a, a carefree picture of myself. And we go on social media and we look at everybody else's pictures and we judge them and we talk about them. Oh, they're so phony and all those other things. God, it's not really gossip. It's just the way our generation talks. It's just the way that our culture deals with people. Can we say, all right, God, maybe there is some gossip in my life where I'm talking about people behind their back and that's wrong of me. Will we submit that and surrender that to God or will we say, God, you need to surrender to me? Marriage. God calls wives to, to respect their husbands. God calls husbands to sacrificially love their wives. Anybody married for anybody in time know how hard that is? We argue, we're like, God, you don't know my spouse. <laughs> you don't know my husband. He's not worth my respect. He's not worthy of my respect. God, my wife, do you know how hard it is for me to sacrificially love her? Are we expecting God to bend to our will or will we surrender and bend towards his Scripture says, God says, let no unwholesome talk come out of our mouth. We're like, well, God, it's just a few bad words. Everybody does it. Well, God, how do you define what unwholesome talk is? Like, like those four little words, they're not that bad. Will we surrender to God's will or we expect God to surrender to ours? Where is it that you need to submit to God? and to bend your will to his. Here's the good news, though. Here's the good news, though. He is a good God. He is a creator of all things. He is gracious and loving. And he's offered us not just life, but life abundant. And I don't know about you, but I think the creator of the universe who loves you and says, I want to give you abundant life, I think I'm probably willing to say, all right, God, I might need to cater to some of you and I need to surrender some of my views towards you so I can experience the abundant life that you have promised. Last question this morning. How committed are you to the church? Now, just practically, like the design of the church is amazing. The church is called to be the family of God. And we talk about here at Restoration Church uh, as a church, we belong together. And that's awesome. I love the way the picture is designed where we live life together and, and we're learning together and we're growing together. And so when we're struggling through some things, some people to walk alongside us. And it is beautiful the way that God has structured the church. In fact, I was talking to someone this week who was a, a new believer. And, and what she was saying, was she was saying, I'm getting this. I can't grow by myself. I need the church. And I'm like, yes, that's true. 
That when we come together as believers, we, we put it into practice together. We grow together. Again, the truth is, the design is wonderful. At times, church is hard. At times, church is difficult. And why is that? Because every one of us in this room, every one of us in the church, we are recovering sinners. We all have our hangups, areas that God is still working on us. At times that we drive each other crazy and we treat each other wrong. I mean, look, look at Peter. Here the church is criticizing him and they're completely wrong. Can you imagine if Peter was in our day and age, he'd be on Facebook, let me tell you about my church hurt. Let me tell you about, I was preaching to these people and the church criticized me and, and let me tell you how bad the church is. No, thus, imperfect as the church was, Peter was patient. He was committed to working through the issue. He gave the church grace and forgiveness when it was needed and he stayed engaged with the mission. make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to deserve all that he commanded. See, if the church is going to be not just an institution, but if the church is going to become a movement, that times when church gets hard, we need to recognize you need it. The church needs you. We need the church. And I can't say this enough. Jump in with us learn, be discipled, disciple someone else. Let's get after it and watch the church become a 